Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling thriller, thriller writer James Rollins. James' latest novel is Kingdom of Bones, the 16th Sigma Force novel. Publishers Weekly wrote about Kingdom of Bones, exhilarating. Fans of Clive Cussler and Michael Crichton won't want to miss this one. Also, earlier this year, James had the first novel in a brand new fantasy series published, The Starless Crown, Moonfall Book One. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about Kingdom of Bones, your new novel, how would you describe the novel? Uh, basically, it's a sprawling jumble, jungle epic. Yeah, it's a sprawling jungle epic that starts when all hell breaks loose in a UN relief camp deep in the African Congo. There, men, women, children are all found in a sort of a dull, catatonic state, while the environment surrounding them, both plants and animals, is evolving at an exponential rate, turning more predatory, more dangerous, more toxic. It's just not happening in that one village. It's sweeping across Africa, threatening the rest of the globe. To head off this catastrophe, this book's hero, Sigma Force, must uncover the secret at the heart of the African continent and a cursed place known as the Kingdom of Bones. It's a story that examines our place in the natural world, even casts a light on the current pandemic. It's a big roller coaster of an adventure, but hopefully when you're done reading this book, you're going to have better insight into what's really going on today in the world of the COVID, in the world of this pandemic, and where we're heading next. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Kingdom of Bones? Yeah, I know exactly. I always have my antenna up for ideas. I'm always collecting articles. And in 2019, New Scientist magazine, early in 2019, had an article that was titled, uh, When is the Next Global Pandemic Due? Now, I had done pandemic novels in the past. So I really wasn't so much glomming onto that. Uh, mm -hmm. I had done a novel called Seventh, Sixth, Sixth Extinction, The Seventh Plague, which are both sort of pandemic-esque novels. But what was interesting about that article was they talked about virus hunters. You know, those scientists are going out in the field looking for the next pandemic pathogen. And I was really intrigued by, the, uh, by, that, by that job, by what they were uncovering. So I built a story around that um, and pitched it to my editor in the middle of 2019. And she said, hey, that sounds great. Go for it. Began working on the novel. Then 2020 happens and COVID rears its head. <laughs> and I get an email from my editor, Jim, you know, you were talking to all these virologists last year. Did any of them, you know, warn you what was happening? Did they give you a heads up? Uh, they did not. Uh, in fact, what they were telling me, uh, both before the pandemic and in the early months that COVID appeared, uh, was pretty frightening because they were, they were pretty panicked, which, of course, made me panicked. And they were giving me great insight into what's happening in the world of virology, a sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what was going on early in the pandemic that really spoke to me what I wanted to do in this novel. So those that read the novel are going to find some shocking details that do shine a pretty incredible light on the current pandemic, but also, more importantly, what's to come. Well, I'm curious. I mean, these Sigma Force novels are, are big international bestsellers. What's your research process when you're thinking about and planning and plotting a new Sigma Force novel? Well, first of all, I always have my antenna up for that next idea. Mm -hmm. I'm looking basically for two things. I'm looking for a historical mystery, some piece of history that ends in a question mark, something I can probably you know, possibly solve within the pages of a novel. 
And two, I'm looking for that science that makes me go, what if, where's that headed? How might that be a threat? And then, then of course, I just, I just accumulate those. I just toss them in a big basket, basically. Uh, it's, it's, it's messy. It's, there's no order to it. And I sift through it on a regular basis. And all of a sudden, I'll have one piece of history in one hand, a piece of science in the other. Then I'll begin to see how those two might connect. And then I'll do some further research and realize, no, that they don't connect. Or I will then find sort of a snowball effect that says, yeah, this is a cool book I can write. And then, of course, I need to do more research. I, I do it on the internet, of course, mostly. But mm-hmm. I also like to get word of mouth. I always describe myself as a bit of a lazy editor. I'd rather people tell me things than me having to look it up. And I think it's more important, especially if you're doing a sort of a scientific-based techno thriller, that you have that access directly to those scientists involved in whatever aspect of science you want to deal with, because science changes rapidly, and the book writing process is slow. And if you tell me I come with an idea, do my research, write the book, and the lag time between finishing the book and getting published could be up to two years. So science changes so rapidly that what I might be writing could be stale by the time the book comes out. So I, I love talking to scientists. Surprisingly, scientists like talking to me. I think it's mostly because they are, they, you know, they finally have an audience that is enthusiastic as they are for their work. Uh, so they will oftentimes tell you stuff that is, is pretty amazing and not stuff that's going to go in a journal article that's going to be published three months from now or in a book that's going to be coming out two years from now. Right then, you know, I always like to ask these scientists, you know, look over your shoulder. Tell me what's on your lab table right now, because I need that sense of immediacy so that when my book comes out, that science is still topical. That's interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about your writing process when you're um, working on a novel? Uh, are are you someone who who uh, plots extensively before you sit down and start writing page one, or how does that work for you? You know, each author is different. You know, I've been on panelists at literary conferences or events where they've had uh, you know three or four authors that are that are firmly believing in, in detail outlining your story before writing it and the other side of the panel is three or more authors that write from the seat of their pants usually by the end of that uh, panelist they're in a fist fight because their their minds are wired so differently so there's no there's no wrong or right way of doing it for me personally I because my stories are a bit of a roller coaster ride you know I'm, I'm you know having to make sure the drops land just right and that each twist and turn makes sense. I need a little bit of, a, of an outline. I'll know the beginning. I'll know the end really well because I need to know where that, that's, that, uh, that roller coaster is going to land. And I'll know two or three of the 10 poles that are going to hold up the story. But I don't know how A connects to B connects to C until I begin writing the novel. Because one of the joys to me is that discovery between those 10 poles. It's the surprises that occur. Is what gets me excited about returning to the story. Whereas if I overly outlined a story, if I knew it too well, I fear I'd get a little bored with trying to write that overly detailed outlined story. And readers have a good nose on them. They can sort of sense when a, a writer is bored or going through the motions with their writing. You know, whenever I teach writing, I tell people, you need to be writing from a point of passion at all points. You know, if you're not passionate about your work, your reader's going to sense it. So one of the ways I help stoke that passion is the unknown, is writing my characters into a corner that I don't know how to get them out because I haven't pre-plotted it. Because uh, if I can't figure out how to get them out of that jam, neither is my readers. So that's a great sort of uh, pickle to get them stuck in. Well, as I mentioned, Kingdom of Bones, your new novel, is the 16th Sigma Force novel, which are big international thrillers. 
But earlier this year, you had the first book in a new fantasy series published, The Starless Crown, Moonfall, book one. What led you to writing The Starless Crown? Well, it seems like an odd departure for a, a writer of staccato-paced thrillers to, to, to delve into to, you know, world-building fantasy. But actually, it's a return to my roots. Back in my, when I first started writing, uh, I was unpublished, struggling to find a home for my books. Uh, I wrote a thriller, could not find a home for it. So I, I switched and wrote a fantasy, worked on that. Then I went from unpublished to within one week, suddenly I had two different publishers, one that wanted the fantasy, another publisher that wanted the thriller. And suddenly I went from unpublished to having two different publishing houses, two different genres, and two different pen names. So for the first decade of my career, I was writing a, a fantasy every year and a thriller every year. And though James Rollins sort of overtook James Clemens, the, my, my nom de plure of my fantasy writing career, I was still continuing to write two books a year. I would do my sort of my Sigma book every year and then something else. Because I always like to sort of switch out and think of my own Sigma book after Sigma book after Sigma book. I secretly fear that I would get sort of into that rut that I was just describing a moment ago. And I don't want that to happen. So I always find that I need to, to alternate with something else. So I have this idea for a fantasy story that almost a decade ago. But since I had set aside fantasy, I, I didn't. I didn't let it sit on the shelf for a while, but the problem with those ideas that, that form in my head, I can't let them go. So I kept going back to them. I kept adding notes to this journal that was associated with that book. I kept scribbling little drawings. I kept doing the maps of that world. And eventually it became such a big snowball. It became such a loud voice in my head. I just had to return to it. And uh, it's one t very minor silver lining of COVID is that I find myself having a little extra free time. That I thought I'm going to go ahead and, and jump into this story that I've been, you know, craving to write. So that became the Starless Crown. That's great. And I'm curious what what was your initial writing journey? You mentioned earlier that when you before you uh, got published, both fantasy and thriller at, within weeks of each other. Um, what was driving you to 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 write? What got you initially interested in writing fiction? Well, I never thought it was going to be a career. I, I did it as a hobby. Uh, I my day job was veterinary medicine. I was a veterinarian, and uh, I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian from third grade. I got an assignment that you at some point get in elementary school, where the teacher sends you home and asks you to write an essay on what you want to be when you want grow up. And I remember sitting at the the table with a blank sheet of paper in front of me from third grade. It was a point of great stress. That's why I remember it so well. I knew I wanted to put veterinarian in there. I just didn't know how to spell it. So at third grade, I got a dictionary and looked it up. It was that determined to be a veterinarian. So that was one side of my brain. loves animals, loves medicine, loves science. But the other side of my brain is a little more twisted. Uh, I was, uh, I had three brothers and three sisters, so a big family. And they were the, the early targets for my early storytelling. My mom called it lying. I call it storytelling. You know, my goal was to basically convince my younger siblings of the most outlandish stories I could think of. And if tears were involved, all the better. So there was that side of my brain also. So as years went on, I continued to read. And reading is like throwing gasoline on that side of the brain. I love to tell stories. But again, I was career tracked to being a veterinarian. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I could never quite let go of the idea of writing. Even in veterinary school, I remember the veterinary students had to man the veterinary ICU at the veterinary hospital uh, from midnight to 8 a.m. And one of the nights I had no patience, but I still had to be there in case there was that emergency that came in. So I used that time to write. 
Now, so even back then, I was dabbling with writing. Again, I didn't think it was a career. I just did because I like, enjoyed doing it. But then these years went by. Uh, I started my own practice, got busier and busier. Uh, but I couldn't quite let it go. I considered it just a hobby. I joined a writing, writer's club in Sacramento and uh, joined a critique group and shared stories and tried to dabble with writing short fiction for about four years. I wrote a bunch of short fiction. Nothing sold. It's now safely buried in my backyard. But I felt confident enough at that point to maybe tackle my first novel. So I worked on that and with no aspirations, more than maybe a one day walking to a bookstore and see one of my books on a shelf somewhere. And so I began pitching that. And because I didn't have much success with that first thriller, it was rejected by 49 different agents. Uh, then I began tackling, thought, well, maybe I'm not a thriller writer. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should try a different genre than I'd love to read. So I jumped over to fantasy. And like I said, long story short, I was sort of ruined the punchline. Suddenly, out of the blue, with a one week, I had two offers for the two different books I had written from two different publishing houses and two different genres. But I didn't get the day job. I still continued to work. Um, my clients became suspicious. Something was going on with Dr. Jim, uh, mostly <laughs> because of the poster in the lobby, you know, get your cat spayed, get a free book. So, uh, you know, questions <laughs> would arise across that exam table. You know, Jim, what are you doing? You know, you got a successful veterinary hospital. What's this writing business? Yeah, I thought, well, let me let me try to explain if I can. You know, for 15, 20 years, veterinary medicine was my paycheck and writing was just a hobby. And even back then, those first two books did not sell for much. I mean, they were just pennies, really. And, but I enjoyed it. And I thought, well, maybe further down the line, it might be cool to reverse that role, is to have veterinary medicine be my hobby and writing be my paycheck. And I always sort of resent when someone says former veterinarian. I get that added a lot, former veterinarian, James Rollins. I'm still licensed. I still practice. I still work with a volunteer group that uh, collects uh, feral cats. Uh, they trap them bring them to the shelter. I spend one Sunday a month for about eight hours spaying and neutering them. So now all I do with my veterinary degree basically is remove genitalia, but uh, <laughs> it's a hobby. So, you know, I, I, I'm satisfied I've met that goal. So I'm curious, given your success since uh, selling those first two books and getting them published, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who, who may be working on their own novels or short stories? Again, if you, I've had no formal training in writing. Um, again, as I mentioned before, career tracks from third grade to be a veterinarian. Uh, but I read a lot. And I think that's vitally important. I mean, I've had no formal training in writing. If you read any of my books, you're going to go, he said, no formal training in writing. Uh, but I read a lot. And so the, there's no adage of, of, of how to get published is that you have to write every day. And that's very true. You know, You have to hone your craft. There is a phrase i heard at one conference that you should you should write you should expect to write a million words before you should expect to be published because you have to practice the craft so you should be writing every day and practicing and honing your skills but i have my own caveat to that which is you should be reading every night because whatever problem you have with your writing days you're struggling with that whether it's you know how to do dialogue authentically how to introduce a character without having them look in a mirror uh as you read your book at night, you're going to see how an author handled that problem. And that knot that formed in your head during the day, struggling with that, begins to untie at night. And so if you're writing every day and reading every night, your prose is naturally going to get stronger and stronger. And that's what I learned. And I still practice that today. I don't understand those uh, authors who say, I don't have time to read. I read voraciously today. I keep a bed, you know, books at multiple places. I'm in like four different books at any one time. I carry a notebook around with me. If I see an author doing something really cool or doing something that I've not seen done before or, or turn a phrase or a colorful way of doing something, I make a note of it. And I hope you know, to eventually incorporate that in my next book. 
So I think, you know, it's, it's important that, uh, especially again, maybe one way to help again to avoid that sense of boredom of getting in a rut is by challenging myself. And when I read other books and see what other authors are doing, it, it inspires me. It, it challenges me to, to try to, to, to improve my writing. Well, on that note, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, right now I read, uh, oh, God, I'm just drawing a blank on the name of the book. It's right over there. A Jade Legacy, um, which is up for the Hugo Award. And I'm just mm-hmm. drawing a blank on the author's name, which is horrible. I just met her. It's a wonderful, it's, it's a third book in a trilogy that she's written. Uh, it's a fantasy based sort of a, 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 an Asian fantasy esque world. That was great. Um, that's what I read recently. I finally tackled Jonathan Strange. I can't remember the Mr. Norelli. Susanna Clark's book. It's such a big book. I was intimidated. I had it on my shelf probably for at least a decade or whenever it first came out, I got it, but it was so intimidating. It was such a big book. Um, I finally tackled that and finished that. Um, what else have I read recently? I read the history of pulp magazines. That was very intriguing. I have a very, very big pulp uh, a reader. Uh, you know, I've got 181 Doc Savage novels on my bookshelf here. The pulps that were, that were written in the 30s and 40s that were turned into bantam reprints during the 70s. And I collected all 181 of them. And they're basically said about a group of scientists centered around sort of a super, a larger than life sort of, of hero. And uh, one person at one point, decades later, wrote me and said, hey, James, you know, I'm, I'm reading your Sigma Force universe, or books rather. And it looks to me as you're just ripping off those old Doc Savage novels. And I realized, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's right. Pretty, pretty much what Sigma Force is just that a group of scientists centered around a hero. It's pretty much, I'm just realizing I'm just doing a modern spin on those old Doc Savage novels. Sure. It's surprising well, that people that's good source material to rip off. It is, it's excellent source material. Yes. But so, you know, what is always, next? There's always adage and writers are. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say. So I was going to say that you know, writers are naked on the page. We, we apparently we, we reveal much more about it with them ourselves than uh, than than not. You know, another reader, another writer, reader basically emailed me and said, "Hey Jim, how come you know, in this point of your of your series of books, does all of your all of your main characters seem to have animal sidekicks? You know, whether it's a you know, military war dog or whether it's a sign language speaking gorilla. You know, how come there's no animals prior to that? And I realized that when I was practicing veterinary medicine, I that was it. My writing was an escape. I didn't have any animals in it. But once I stepped away from full-time practicing, unbeknownst to me, these animals started appearing in my novel. So that, that one side of my brain that, that loved animals and medicine science, you know, just because I wasn't being satisfied anymore from the day in day out of practicing, crept into my writing. So it gets strange the way you sort of people pick up on things that you don't realize they're picking up about you. <laughs> That's great. Well, what is next for you beyond Kingdom of Bones? Well, I do have the next in the uh, uh, fantasy series. Uh, it's called Cradle of Ice. I finished that book. Uh, I'm also just uh, in the midst of uh, the big sprawling Sigma book that's coming up that takes place in Australia. It deals with early colonial history of Australia, Aboriginal mythology, and a modern-day treasure hunt for a mysterious artifact that could prove that we're not alone in the universe. That sounds great. Well, again, we've been speaking with James Rollins. Rollins' latest Sigma Force novel, Kingdom of Bones, has just been published, so grab a copy today. And as we mentioned, 
James' latest fantasy novel, The Starless Crown, Moonfall Book One, was recently published, so you can grab a copy of that as well. And James, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, and thanks for the support. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Kingdom of Bones by James Rollins, narrated by Christian Baskus, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The Reverend William Shepherd silently recited the Lord's Prayer as he waited for the cannibal to finish filing his teeth. The Bassonnier tribesman held a bone rasp in one hand and a mirror in the other as he crouched by the fire. He sharpened an incisor to a finer point, smiled admiringly at his handiwork, then finally stood. The tribesman towered before Shepard, standing nearly seven feet tall. The cannibal was dapperly dressed in long pants, polished boots, and a buttoned shirt. He could easily be mistaken for a fellow classmate of Shepherd's at the Southern Presbyterian Theological Seminary for colored men in Tuscaloosa, from which the reverend had graduated. Only as was typical for the cannibal's tribe, the giant here had shaved his eyebrows and plucked his eyelashes, creating a frightening countenance, especially with his shark-toothed grin. Shepherd sweated in a white linen suit and tie and a matching pith helmet. He craned his neck to face the leader of the Zappo-Zaps. The warlike tribe had allied themselves with Belgium's colonial forces and served as King Leopold's de facto army. The infamous Zappo-Zaps had earned their name from the rattling blasts of their many guns. Shepard noted the long rifle slung over the cannibal's shoulder. He wondered how many innocents had died because of that one weapon. Upon entering the village, Shepard had observed dozens of fly-crusted bodies. From the piles of scorched bones, it was evident many others had already been eaten. Nearby, a tribesman set about carving a fresh, bloody slab from a severed thigh. Another zappo-zap rolled leaves of tobacco inside a hollowed-out skull. Even the fire that stood between him and their group's leader served to smoke a set of severed hands skewered on bamboo sticks above the flames. Shepard did his best to ignore the horrors here, even as his senses were assaulted. Clouds of black flies hummed in the air. The stench of burned flesh hung in his nostrils. To keep down his bile, he fixed his gaze on the tribesmen. It would not help his cause to object or to show any squeamishness. Shepard spoke slowly, knowing the cannibal, knew both English and French, but was far from fluent in either. Mlumba, I must speak to Captain Desprez. It is of utmost importance that he hear me out. Mlumba shrugged. He not hear. He gone. Then what of Collard or Remy? Another shrug, but the man's expression darkened. Gone with the Capitaine. Shepard frowned. Depre, Collard, and Remy, all members of the Belgian army, led the Zappo Zaps in this region. Shepard had come to know the trio after he had established a Christian mission along the Kasai River, a tributary of the Congo. The Belgians' absence here was unusual, especially when their group collected its rubber tax from a village. Not that any of the officers would have stopped the atrocities committed here. In fact, the trio encouraged such brutality. Desprez even carried a bullwhip, knotted out of hippo leather. 
that he used to flay the flesh from his victims at the least offense. For the past few months, the captain had been leading this group in a rampage along the Kasai River, terrorizing village after village, heading inexorably north. It was for this reason that Shepard had left his mission in Ibanji and sought out this group. Another tribe, the Kuba, had sent an emissary from their king to plead with Shepard, asking for the reverend to stop the murderous Zappo-Zaps from entering their territory. He could not refuse this request. Two years earlier, Shepard had been the first foreigner allowed to enter the Kuba kingdom, mostly because he had taken the time to learn their language. After proving his fluency, he was treated graciously by the royal court. He found the people to be honest and industrious, despite their beliefs in witchcraft, and a king who had seven hundred wives. While he had failed to convert any of them, he had still found them to be great allies in this hostile region. Now they need my help. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.